All right, let's dive in. We are in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Um, if you would, please turn your Bibles there. If you need a Bible, they're in the back. My notes are in the foyer if you want to follow along with me. For the past nine weeks now, we have seen Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, and He is the Son of Man. And He has been ministering to religious people known as the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus has taught with perfect clarity with the Old Testament Scriptures. He has also displayed His incredible mercy by performing miracle after miracle. And Jesus has also revealed his divine power by casting out demons. And yet none of those things that Jesus did was good enough for the scribes and for the Pharisees. At least to believe, to believe that he is the son of God, that he is the son of man. And rather than believing, they spent their time arguing. They were enraged by his mercy, and they even attributed Jesus' divine power to Satan himself. So let's just pause right there. I mean, how far away from God can you possibly be to watch Jesus of Nazareth give sight to the blind, to give hearing to the deaf, and to raise the lame, to allow them to walk, and say, and watch all those things, and then say that all of those good things that Jesus is doing was done by the power of the evil one. I mean, I think even Satan was shaking his head in disbelief with that one. Like, really, guys? Wow. And yet, these men who charged Jesus of being Satan or at least having demonic powers, they were the pastors, they were the priests, they were the minister of Jesus' day. So what is Jesus to do when there is nothing else to do to minister to these men? You guys know that. That old phrase, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink. So when all the options have been exhausted, what is Jesus to do now? And despite Israel's rejection of Jesus, Jesus still has a mission to complete. And today, we're going to see something really special here. We're going to see that nothing will thwart or frustrate God's plan of redemption. Redemption. It's this, this idea of buying back, God rescuing us from ourselves. We are, we are lost. So God is, that's the plan of redemption. That's God's, uh, the plan of Jesus. And Jesus had two primary objectives for that plan, to redeem us. The, the first is to teach and preach the good news of the gospel. And the second is to pay for the sinner's sin himself. So how did Jesus make this sin payment? How did Jesus pay our sin debt? How did he do it? Well, the answer is by dying on a Roman cross, being buried for three days, and then being resurrected back to life. Now, we know this, right? We've heard that. We know that. We believe that. But hindsight is always 20-20, because back then, Jesus had a major problem for the past nine weeks that we've been studying. The very people that Jesus came from heaven to save, they don't want him. So once again, what is Jesus to do with this rejection? How does Jesus now redeem sinners? Well, today, once again, it is an exciting day because uh, it makes uh, a major transition. Jesus makes a, a major transition here in his ministry. 
Jesus has a purpose. He will not fail. But what we're going to do is we're going to see him change a few things along the way. So in other words, today we're going to learn that even Jesus had a plan B. We're going to learn here about Jesus, about parables, and about God's plan B. Have you, ever, have you guys ever noticed that, that we, as sinful human beings, we seem to always mess up God's plan A? Have you noticed that? Yeah, let me give you a couple of examples from Scripture here. Oops, Eve ate, Eve ate the fruit. And God says, oh boy, don't worry, don't worry, I got plan B. Oops, Abraham slept with Agar. God says, oh boy, don't worry, I got plan B. Oops, Moses gets angry and he throws down the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God and he breaks them. And Yahweh God goes, all right, Moses, we're going to have to get you into an anger management group. But other than that, I've got plan B. I got it. Oops, Joshua's spies, they are so scared of the giants in the promised land, they refuse to go. And God says, I got plan B. Oops, King David, he slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And God says, okay, that's tragic, and yet I've got plan B. Now, as you hear those stories and as you look over your own life, aren't you grateful for all the plan Bs as you look in the rearview mirror? Aren't you glad? I love plan Bs, and I especially love God's plan uh, for plan Bs. I mean, think of those, all those little silly, these stupid things that we did. And yet God, he is so rich in his mercy, he is so rich in his grace, he bails us out time and time and time again. In every book of the Old Testament, we see a plan B. We do. And when we flip to the Gospels, we see God's uh, plan B here regarding the redemption of our sin. The scribes and the Pharisees, they have officially rejected Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. And Jesus says, fine. You guys don't want me? I've got plan B. So Jesus today, he's got a new focus on how to complete his mission of saving the world, redeeming sinners. Now, what would you recommend if you had a suggestion for Jesus? If you were in the inner circle, what would you recommend to Jesus on how to do this? I like the idea of Rambo, actually. <laughs> At least, at least the notion of Jason Bourne. That's my idea. But you know what? As I thought about that, mm, killing everybody and starting over, that didn't work the first time. We can just ask Noah about that. So Jesus does the unthinkable today. What is it and how does it apply to us today? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading. And the honoring of God's word. Scripture passages are on the screen. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3 today. Please read with me loud and proud. This is God's word now. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him 
that he got into a boat and he sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables. Guys, these are the very words from God this morning. They are authoritative for us if we are disciples of Jesus, if we are born again. These words are infallible, they're inspired, they're inerrant, and I pray that we hear them as such. Please pray with me. The psalmist writes, make your ways known to me. Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth, and teach me. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Have a seat. Hey, Jeff, can you pull that, that door for me? I'm getting that glare. I'm blinded by the light. <laughs> Thank you, Lonnie. All right, let's take a look. Verse, verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. So Matthew 13 begins with on that day. This is a big day. This is a day of, of divine transition for Jesus. Your translation may read on the same day. So on that day, on the same day, Jesus, uh, it's the same day that, that Jesus' mother, brothers came to him trying to interrupt his teaching. Matthew also points us back to everything that we've learned back in Matthew chapter 12. So on that day, Jesus taught the word of God with purity and passion. On that day, Jesus preached the gospel. On that day, Jesus healed many people of all sorts of sicknesses and diseases. On that day, Jesus cast out demons. And on that day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they called Jesus Satan. And then Jesus said, oh yeah? Well, you guys are a bunch of vipers. You're a brood of vipers. So take that. <laughs> that all happened on the same day. And you guys thought you were tired when you get home from work. On that day, Matthew, he invites us here to ponder and to think critically about all the problems, all the disagreements, all the arguments that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees along with his family. So let's think about this for a second. Jesus has performed miraculous signs that have proved time and time and time again that he is God. Jesus is not a magician. Jesus performed miracles. And he performed miracles to do one thing, and that was to prove the validity of his message, the gospel message. And yet, after seeing all these things and, and hearing Jesus preach and teach, people question Jesus. And more people doubt Jesus. And the leadership of Israel, they outright oppose Jesus and they just want him dead. They threaten, he threatens their livelihood. So put yourself in, in the disciples' shoes here. The 12, they've got to be confused. I mean, they believe Jesus to be God's son. They believe that he is the savior, although imperfectly, just like us. So why? Why then do so many people refuse to believe? Why all this unbelief? Why all this tension? Why all this hate towards Jesus? 
Back to verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house. So while all those questions are lingering in the air, Jesus decides to get some fresh air. Jesus changes his physical location along with his ministry strategy. Jesus leaves the house that he was teaching out of. He was teaching um, out of the house at the end of Matthew chapter 12 here. Most people believe that this was Peter's house. Uh, Jesus' ministry headquarters is in Capernaum. He's probably teaching out of Pete's house because Jesus didn't have a house of his own. So anyway, he leaves the house. He starts walking towards the Sea of Galilee, which is only a few minutes away. Back to verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and he was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat. He sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. So Jesus continues to do what he's been doing. He's teaching, he's preaching. And as he does, more and more people, they, they, they show up. The beach starts to get really crowded. Luke's gospel fills in an important detail here. Look at this, Luke 8, 4. As a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from every town. From every town. So although the leaders of Israel, they did not want Jesus, and although these leaders, they did speak for the nation from a political standpoint, the citizens of Israel, and even the, the surrounding Gentile towns, they were still coming to hear Jesus teach and preach. Verse 2, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat down. Well, the whole crowd stood on the shore. So there are so many people listening that Jesus runs out of personal space. Jesus is backed into a corner here. He turns into MacGyver. You guys watch that show, MacGyver? Okay, it was a really bad illustration then. Sorry. <laughs> he was a guy that could use duct tape and a hammer and get to space. Jesus turns into MacGyver. He, he turns this boat into a floating pulpit. Back to verse 2. He got into a boat. He sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. So sitting, that was the natural posture and position for teachers in the first century. Everybody else stood. So we got it backwards, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Why did Jesus get into a boat? Because the boat gave him some distance between him and the crowd. Keep in mind that Jesus is the creator of the cosmos. With few exceptions, Jesus is the voice. He is the face of the Trinity. Jesus is the one who created the water. He knows the properties of water. He also knows the properties of sound. And I love that. When I was a little boy... Uh, my brother and I, we spent a lot of time at the lake, and we were always swimming, we were skiing, we spent the summers at the lake, and even as a little boy, I realized, wow, especially at night, all the way across the lake, you could hear people speaking, just having a normal conversation. They weren't yelling, you could hear it all the way across the water, it was fascinating. So Jesus, as the master teacher here, he gets into this boat, he sits down to teach, knowing that this is the best place for him to be seen and heard. 
Local tradition says that Jesus was preaching at what they, they now call the Cove of the Parables. The Cove of the Parables. The Cove really is a natural amphitheater that was kind of shaped like a horseshoe. So the natural acoustics, um, there was no need for a microphone, there was no need for a PA system. The natural acoustics could have carried Jesus' voice the length of a football field for everybody listening. Back to verse 3. He told them many things in parables. Make a note in your Bible here. Parables are plan B. Parables are plan B. So let's talk about what a parable is. Key point number one, a parable. It's a simple story that illustrates a profound spiritual truth. Parable, it's a simple story that illustrates a profound spiritual truth. Parables are the consequences of Israel's unbelief and rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. It's a rejection because parables are they're similar to riddles, but these riddles have a deep spiritual meaning. So parables are consequences. Israel rejected Jesus as her king, so Jesus would not establish his earthly kingdom at this time. They blew it. Right? They lost the opportunity, they, they lost the privilege, they lost the benefit of seeing God's kingdom being established in their day. See, God the Father had plan A. Have you ever thought about plan A? Plan A was this, that God the Father would send the second person of the Trinity, once again, as the face of God, that's Jesus. For us to understand that divine relationship, God uses family as an illustration. So God the Father, we got God the Son. So Jesus is God's Son. He would be conceived, Jesus would be conceived of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He would be born of a virgin. Why? To bypass human sin. Jesus would then live in complete obscurity, live in a perfect life, remaining sinless. And then Jesus would then reveal himself to the nation as her long-awaited Messiah and Savior, by doing what he's doing, by teaching, preaching, and healing the country. The Jewish leaders, they were to immediately recognize this. They, they were supposed to fall on their face, begging for mercy, begging for forgiveness. And then Jesus would have literally established the kingdom of God at that moment. Now the question becomes, how would Jesus pay the debt for sinners if Israel would have accepted him as their king? How would have that taken place? I always like to ask a, answer a question with another question. Let me ask you this. What do you think Rome would have done when they found out that the Jews were proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as their king? How would have Rome responded? Rome had zero tolerance for such threats, didn't they? Because there was only one king, and his name was Caesar. Jesus would have been crucified by the Romans instead of the Jews. The Romans would have killed Jesus that day, most likely, or a few days after that. 
Jesus still would have died on the cross. He still would have shed his blood for the redemption of sinners. He would have experienced the righteous wrath of God, being the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, Jesus still would have been buried, and on the third day, he would have been resurrected. And then rather than ascending back to heaven, where he came from, Jesus would have conquered Rome and established the rule of his earthly kingdom. That was plan A. But once again, we get in the way. Sinful humanity gets in the way, and God says, all right, don't worry, I've got plan B, I can fix it. And with that, parables, of all things, become plan B. Once again, a parable is a story. It it contains a fundamental spiritual truth. So what I want to do here with the rest of our time, I want to teach what a parable is and what a parable is not. Because grasping what Jesus is doing here at this moment is crucial. Because we're going to go really slowly through all of these these parables in Matthew chapter 13. And if we don't understand why Jesus is teaching them parables, we're not going to understand the parables themselves. Jesus did not invent the parable, but man, he sure did redefine it. Parables differ from fables. Fables are not spiritual. Parables also differ from allegories. The Pilgrim's Progress. The Chronicles of Narnia, well-known allegories, a ton of symbolism in those books. The parable is a bit different, though, because it generally has one main point uh, with much less symbolism than an allegory. Parables are also way shorter than allegories. So let's dive in here. Parable, a parable. The Greek term, parabole. Parabole, it's a compound word, para, means to come alongside of. Next is the verb balo, it means to throw, it means to lay aside, it means to place. So when you combine both compound words, we get parabole, or parable. So let me give you a couple examples. A paralegal, someone who comes alongside a lawyer to provide help. A parachurch ministry. That's a ministry that comes alongside the church. It helps them in a specialized area of ministry. Grief share, perfect example of of a parachurch ministry that we have here on Tuesday nights. So this brings us to key point number two. A parable uses something very familiar placed alongside something unfamiliar. A parable uses something very familiar placed right alongside something unfamiliar. So over the next few months, we're going to see how Jesus chose illustrations that were very familiar to his first century audience. And what he did is he laid those things next to spiritual illustrations, right? And those things were alongside something that was not known and not understood. And all that, all that was done in an effort to make a profound spiritual truth. You know, many times Jesus chose words that were picturesque, right? He loved painting these amazing pictures in our minds. Jesus spoke of sheep among wolves. It's a great picture, right? We've got these harmless little sheep and these vicious wolves. 
Jesus spoke of, of camels going through the, the eye of a needle. It's a great picture. We got these gigantic camels trying to get through the eye of a needle. Tiny, tiny eye of a needle. Jesus spoke of people trying to remove specks from other people's eyes while planks were in their own. In other words, they couldn't even, because of the plank that was in their own eye, they couldn't even reach the other person's face to get the speck out. Wonderful word picture. Jesus spoke of throwing children's bread to dogs. In other words, you're, you're giving, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're making your children's food dog food. You didn't really do that in the first century. Jesus spoke of, of warning against the, the Pharisees. He said, be, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. So he loved using these amazing pictures, these word pictures. Now the question still remains though, all right, why? Why are parables, of all things, stories, why are they God's plan B for redemption? Well, key point number three, let's look at this. Parables both reveal and conceal gospel truths. Parables both reveal and conceal gospel truths. So it's through this process of revelation and through this process of concealment that Jesus was building a bridge between our natural world that we live in to his spiritual world that he lives in. His bridge is the narrow gate. Let me show you this. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, you got to enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through that. Many, many people. Verse 14, but he says, how narrow is the gate and how difficult that road that leads to life. And circle that word, few. Few. Few find it. And few walk alongside of it. So parables have now become the narrow road. And yes, it is the way for his disciples to grasp these spiritual truths. So for Jesus' disciples, truth is going to be revealed through these stories. But for everybody else, Jesus purposely hides the kingdom of God from them. He hides the kingdom. He hides the truth. Now let me ask you, does that sound like a good idea? Does that sound like a good ministry strategy? We would all say no, right? It's not a good ministry. That's not how you build a church. Talking in riddles that no one can understand. But that's what Jesus does. It's really important to understand that as we move forward in Matthew chapter 13, that we understand that God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not mine. And then he says, this is the Lord's declaration. In other words, pay attention here. For as heaven is higher than the earth. How about that word picture? As heaven is higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. For just as the rain and the snow fall from heaven and they do not return there. 
without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow, food to eat. He goes on to say, so my word that comes from my mouth, it's not going to return void or empty, but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper in what I send it to do. Isaiah's passage here, it points to the sovereignty of God, God's sovereignty over salvation. So parables are a form of judgment against the nation of Israel. Once again, why? Because they refuse to believe. Now, did, did, uh, did Yahweh God know that Israel would re reject him? Did he know that? You bet he did. You bet he did. The psalmist even prophesied it. See, at one level, Jesus speaks in parables because of a sovereign decision that was already made in the past. Look at this, Psalm 78.1. The psalmist writes, Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I'm saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 the prophet writes, look, the days are coming when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst of water, no, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Amazing that parables were prophesied before Jesus was even born. Now, in the parables of Jesus here, not every detail has a meaning. That's more of an allegory. Um, just be careful as we go through this. Trying to force meaning into every detail, um, that's a very dangerous thing to do. It may lead to a false teaching and certainly false doctrine. So we want to be real careful about that. And we, we really want to be careful for the parables in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, because these parables are unique. These are known as the kingdom parables. These parables are all about the kingdom of God. Right? So these parables are all different from the prodigal son. They're, they're different than the good Samaritan. Different from the Pharisee and the tax collector. The wedding banquet, the, the sheep and the goats. We're all familiar with those. But these in Matthew 13, they're special and they're specific because they all point to heaven. So looking ahead, let me give you a little taste. What's heaven like? And Jesus says in verse, in verse 24, Matthew chapter 13, he says, Well, the kingdom of heaven, it may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Gee, what? No, 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 Jesus, that, that's not my idea of heaven. I mean, I, I, when I think of heaven, I don't think of some guy farming, right? My, my idea of heaven is like, you know, streets of gold and majestic and holiness and Seraphim. You got another example? And Jesus says, well, yeah, verse 31, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Well, Jesus, that doesn't help at all. Mustard seed? No, 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 no. It's, uh, heaven is glorious. You got something else? Uh, Jesus says, yeah, in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and it's buried in a field. Okay, now, see, now, Jesus, I'm tracking, because I like treasures, and I like money, 
And I don't even mind a scavenger hunt. So now I'm starting to understand. Jesus continues here. He goes, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. All right. Not just, just not normal pearls, fine pearls. So we're back on this thing with treasures and money. It's good stuff. And then Jesus says in verse 47, he says, yes, but the kingdom of heaven is also like a large net thrown into the sea. Boring. What are you talking about, Jesus? First it was farming and now we're fishing. That's not heaven. And then Jesus says this. He says in verse 51, he's, he's talking to the disciples, right? He goes, all right, guys, have you, stood, have you understood all of these things? And I just picture the disciples going, yep, I sure do. Yeah, I, I understand everything that you're talking about, Jesus. Just like we do, right? So from this point on, one third of Jesus' teaching is now in parables. When you look at the synoptic gospels, the similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he teaches in parables all the time. And make a note here, all of these parables have one consistent overarching theme, and that is the kingdom of God. And this is no accident, especially in Matt's gospel. Matthew has been revealing how Christ is the king of kings. Last week, we discussed the importance of our spiritual family as the church. And Matthew 13 is the beginning of a new age in church history. We call this age the church age. It's not a, ter- it's not a term you'll find in scripture, uh, but it is a description of the timeline that God has us on. And that brings us to key point number four. Parables, they reveal the nature and the disposition of the church between Jesus' first and second coming. What is the kingdom of God like between Jesus' first and second coming, this this age that we live in? What's the nature? What's the disposition? What's our attitude as the church? What's our outlook like? as we wait for Jesus to come back to return and establish this kingdom. Well, next week, Jesus begins with the most crucial parable. It's called the the parable of the sower. Some call it the parable of the, the soils. There's lots of different titles for it. And Jesus also told his disciples that if you don't understand this parable, if you don't get this one, you're not going to understand any of them. So next week, we're going to begin our study of this parable. We're going to be looking at the first three soils. And as I wrap up, I I want to get back to one of our key points for today. And that is that parables both reveal and conceal gospel truth. Parables, Parables both reveal and conceal gospel truth. The difference between the two is the state of our hearts. So here's a question for us to ponder this week. What's the state of my heart? How's my heart? Is it hard? Am I unteachable? Or is it soft? Am I teachable? Am I willing to learn? Am I going to see this next chapter of God's word as as exciting, like a treasure hunt? 
Or am I just going to tune out, you know, because Jesus, he's just talking about these silly, stupid stories that have no meaning to my life whatsoever. What's the condition of my heart? Ask the Lord. Spend time praying and seeking and, and he'll let you know. I want to give you three reasons why Jesus spoke in parables. The first one is to sow spiritual seed. Jesus speaks in parables to sow spiritual seed. Now, these are for us, all right? He's hiding the truth from the nation of Israel. But what we're going to see here as we look at the, at the parable of the soils is what we're supposed to be doing. So we're supposed to sow spiritual seed. Jesus has a long-term purpose here. He's not addicted to speed like we are. We as the church, we are to sow spiritual seed. We are to tell other people of the gospel. If you're new to River Bible Church, we, we pray that you are experiencing God verse by verse. Why? So that you can go share Jesus day by day. Because the Verde Valley needs Jesus. So we are to sow spiritual seed. That's the gospel. And here's the other thing. It's a seed. It grows slowly. And prayerfully, it will bear fruit. He, Jesus calls this the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28. Jesus allows for a delayed understanding of his teachings. And the question is, do we? When we share Jesus day by day, do we expect people to believe like that? It's a long process, a patient process. So the first is to sow spiritual seed. The second reason that Jesus spoke in parables is to safeguard the secrets of God. To safeguard the secrets of God. God lets us in on a secret here. Primarily that God has secrets. God can keep a secret, but you know what? He can also reveal secrets to, to people of his choosing. God's word is so powerful that it can reach those whom God has chosen and also be hidden to those that God has passed over at the same time. That's amazing. That's the power of God. I want you to think about the last time that you were sharing Jesus or you had some type of gospel conversation with two people. What happened? As you're sharing the good news of the gospel, one person may get it and the other person may not get it. And you're having the same exact conversation. That is to safeguard the secrets of God. And the third reason that Jesus spoke in parables for us is to highlight his sovereignty. To highlight God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, it's God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. See, God has the right to either give or withhold mercy. The Apostle Paul refers to a conversation that Moses had uh, back with Yahweh God. Romans 9.15, for he tells Moses, this is, this is Yahweh God telling Moses, I will show mercy... <laughs> To whom I will show mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then Paul says in verse 16, he says, it doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on our effort. All of this depends on God. It's amazing. On God who shows mercy. We fast forward to today. The Holy Spirit plays the biggest role for us to understand God's mercy. Jesus told a Pharisee named Nicodemus, John 3, 7, he said, Nick, don't be amazed here that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, born again. So please know, guys, as we we study these parables, especially the parable of the soils, that we can't make God save or heal anyone. Those things have already been predetermined and predestined before Jesus spoke the cosmos into existence. But what, what we can do is join God in his work. What we can do is choosing to walk with him at the pace that he walks. And as we do that, he's going to sanctify us. And he's going to reveal the secret things of God along the way. Because that's what the parables are. Jesus is revealing the secret things of God. One last verse for you. And this is a great verse. Psalm 25, 14. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he reveals his covenant, his promises to them. Isn't that cool? So our question remains for this week, guys. How's your heart? How's your heart? Take that question to the Lord this week. Asking, listen, meditate, revere the Lord, worship the Lord, pay honor to the Lord, give him time to work. That answer will come up in scripture. It it may come up from someone that you're talking to, uh, someone that you trust. How's your heart? Well, Father in heaven, that is a great question for us to, to end our sermon today. Pray that our hearts are soft and, and Lord, that you continue to shape and guide and lead and mold. Mold our hearts so that we start looking a little bit more like Jesus every single day. That we honor you with that, that we reflect his glory and his beauty. And at the same time, Lord, that you would point out things to where you're working on us. And when you share those things, those habits, those sins, those behaviors, those words, that we would repent, that we would trust you with our lives so that you can conform us to your will. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for being our, our, our Savior. And Holy Spirit, please continue to walk with us and reveal these amazing truths to us this, this week. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen and amen.